Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Americans have known wars, but for the past 136 years, they have been wars on foreign soil, except for one Sunday in 1941. Americans have known the casualties of war, but not at the center of a great city on a peaceful morning. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. Just nine days after the devastating attacks on September 2001, President George W. Bush delivers this speech to Congress. If you're old enough, you remember where you were the day the Twin Towers were hit. I was 10 years old, packing my lunch and getting ready for class at Takapuna Normal Intermediate School, though that day was anything but normal. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. That reporter, N.J. Burkett, survived, but many others didn't. 2,996 others didn't. I watched on the TV in our living room as the towers fell. A week later, the U.S. president was talking to me. I also want to speak tonight directly to Muslims throughout the world. We respect your faith. It's practiced freely by many millions of Americans and by millions more in countries that America counts as friends. I was young, but there was a feeling in my gut that something had changed. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. These words would signal the beginning of the war on terror, a war that, 15 years on, seems to have no end in sight. A war that would catapult the Muslim community from what had felt like anonymity to being at the very heart of how this war would be fought, abroad and at home. It was the beginning of five days of terror. An imam murdered, shot in the head in Queens. Police say he and a friend were gunned down while they were on their way home from a local mosque. Omar Mateen, who killed 49 people, pledged himself to the leader of ISIS. In matters closer to home, a shocking triple murder in the college town of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. All three victims were Muslim. You're saying that Islamophobia is not a real thing. It, well, it's not a real thing when we do it. This is a war with radical Islam. Dramatic Muslim invasion. Islam is not our adversary. What's a greater threat to civilization? Christian extremism or Muslim extremism? I think Islam hates us. Is there a war between the West and radical Islam, or is there a war between well, the West and Islam it's itself? It's radical. We need to kill them. The radical Muslim terrorists hell-bent on killing us. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown 
of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. I'm Mohammed Hassan, and this is Public Enemy. Over three episodes, we'll meet Muslims living in three countries, the US, Australia, and New Zealand, to examine how their lives changed in the post-9-11 world, whether their faith was in fact respected, and whether the changing political times have stemmed or fueled Islamophobia in their communities. I have just arrived at LAX, Los Angeles, California. As I was going through passport check, uh, one of the TSA officers looks up at me, shakes his head and asks, do I always get stopped at airports? I'm then led into a questioning room and I'm told I can't have my phone on me. They ask me what my parents do, what their names are, where they live, what company I work for, what the address is. I give them all this information and they go check it. And I wait and I wait and I wait. And eventually I'm let out. And they tell me this is gonna happen every time I come here. So I, I feel pretty uh, welcome to this country. <laughs> I'm just opening my phone now to check what the time is. Okay, so wow, so, so I, I was in there for two and a half hours. Welcome to America. How would I describe myself? Um, I describe myself as many people would say a firecracker. This is Nadine Ibrahim. She's 22. Yeah, so I was born in uh, Jerusalem, Palestine. Can't really describe exactly where I grew up because I was an infant at the time, so my childhood memory there is not very clear. Um, but came to the U.S. when I was very young. Um, I actually became a U.S. citizen just five months before 9-11 happened. I grew up in a really small town in northeastern Colorado. Um, it's in a town named Wiggins. Less than 1,000 people live there. The primary demographic there is um, Caucasian Americans. My family was actually and continues to be the only Muslim family to um, continue to live there or to have ever lived there. And we've been living there since 1997. Fast forward a few years, it's 2001. Nadine becomes a U.S. citizen. Five months later... It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Dumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane... She's six at the time, the 18 Trade days Center. away from turning seven. It's a memory that is very vivid within my mind to this day because of how, how impactful it has been on my life ever since. That we were in class, you know, going about our normal thing, learning our ABCs and all that great stuff, hanging out with my friends, painting our fingernails during nap time. And then we all of a sudden got this thing that we immediately had to go home. Like, there was no sense of them talking to us or anything of that sort. We were just told we need to go home. And I just remembered my mom was very frazzled during all of that. And nobody was explaining anything to me. And then we go home, and um, in all complete honest truth, that's the first time I've ever seen my dad cry. He was just so devastated by that and mentioned and told us that everything here on out in terms of our life is going to be different. He told us we would have to make a choice. He would be completely okay with us suppressing our identity in terms of being Muslim Americans and being Arab and things of that sort because he knew that it was the sake of 
protecting who we are and, and ensuring our safety. Or he told us the other opportunity is, this is a prime opportunity for this community to learn more about us. We can be very unapologetic in how we present ourselves and let them know who we are and let us serve as an example of the positive of Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, and ultimately diversity in general. Adin's dad is an entrepreneur. He bought up the town's only gas station when they moved to Wiggins and still runs it by himself. Everyone in the town goes through here at some point. Everyone. Later that evening, this, this guy came in, and my dad was teaching me at the time like how to work on the cash adjuster, because I thought working on the cash adjuster was like the coolest thing ever. So I was really excited to learn how to like push the buttons, like learn the prices and stuff. It was something new. And this, this guy started acting very weird, and he was telling my dad, like, you know, heard that you were Muslim, 9-11 uh, is your fault, you were doing this, and see that you have swords here, and he goes to proceed to grab one. And then he reaches a point where he's threatening my dad's life right before my eyes, telling him that he needed to avenge the people that died in 9-11, and he was going to do that by literally attacking my father. And my dad saw him this, and he's, like, trying to calm down the guy and just have a conversation with him, and my dad told me to go inside. And I just remember sitting inside and just like being scared to death. Like, it, it just didn't make any sense for me that my dad's life was being threatened, not on any basis other than the fact that he chose to practice a certain religion and that he belonged to a certain ethnicity. It takes a while, but her dad manages to talk the man down and everyone lets out a sigh of relief. For Nadine, this moment changed something in her. She remembered what her dad said about choices, about whether to hide or to stand tall. I, I made a commitment to myself that day that I was not going to let experiences like that to impact who I was as an individual and not let experiences like that impact my identity. Like I stand very proud as a Muslim American and I'm going to very much so embody that and I'm going to very much so show that. I adopted that sense of being very unapologetic from that day forward. I wore my Palestinian outfit to school whenever I could. I wore the hijab in third grade to let people know what it means to wear the hijab, even though people called me a towel head and told me, why are you trying to be like Al-Qaeda? Like anything and everything I could possibly do in that small town, I did it. It didn't stop there. She started an international club in high school to help students go out and see the world. She led the Muslim Student Association in college, got onto the local health board, and spoke before the state senate about public health. After 9-11... You know, a lot of people were like, oh, Muslims, like, what is this? You know, like, we've never heard of them. Like, what is Afghanistan? What is Iraq? What is all this stuff? Who are these people? So there was a lot of unknowing behind, like, who we are as Muslims and things like that, because we didn't really feel like we had to really advocate for ourselves so much that the unknowing really propelled that sense of Islamophobia. But when you take a look at now, like, it's 15 years later, we have already, like, had a lot of time for people to learn about Muslims. We've had major professional athletes come out clearly and say that they're Muslim. We've all been in our communities and telling people who we are as Muslims. We've all opened up our, our mosque doors and invited people and telling them who we are as Muslims. It's crazy to think that like we felt like we had a period of time between 9-11 and now where it was like, oh, you know, like it's colorblind America, there's no sense of racism and things like that, which with all due respect was a bunch of baloney for people to think, but to know like, that now ultimately this, this pursuit for the, pre, for the presidency has ultimately opened up this can of Islamophobia at its strongest. In the two years since Donald Trump begins campaigning for president, 16 new hate groups pop up around Colorado, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. At Denver University, where Nadine studies, students are pushed off buses, spit on, and called terrorists. 
Local Muslim leaders warn female students to wear beanies over their hijabs at night so that they're not recognisable. The sense of fear is palpable. How confident Islamophobic people are in doing these acts of hatred is just so unreal right now. It's, it's so draining, it's threatening our security and safety, and it's really hard because it's like, why, don't, why can't people look at us as being Americans? It just doesn't make any sense to me why they look at us in very two separate groups. There are currently 3.3 million Muslims living in the US, just over 1% of the population. One in five of them are converts. On the other side of Denver, I meet Taj al-Shahid. He's lived nearly his whole life in this city. This is the east side of Denver. Um, and this school was, I mean, it was predominantly black and a lot of gang members. So the east side, so you have like the Crips and the Bloods uh, as the two major gangs. And so the east side, this part of Kawal Boulevard was the Crip area, the mm. Crip territory. And then when you cross Kawal Boulevard going more east, that's the Blood territory. And so this was... So this, this school was like caught in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so our mosque is right here. Within 20 minutes of meeting Taj, I learned two things. He became a Muslim later in his life while in prison, and also he'll never work in telemarketing again. I ran a call center. Right. And right. that was like my first, that was my first job. And I did it for Clinton. So it was like we polled, we did his polling every night. And from then, I never have ever done a survey. Ever. <laughs> so <a> destroying <laughs> yeah, job, right? Just, yeah. Just never going to do it. So tell me about this mosque. This building we bought probably for about $19,000. It's probably worth 20 times that much now. It was in dire need of renovation. I think the only area that is even habitable was this front area. You'd never guess that it was once a mosque. It's just a yeah. house. It's it looks, two it's stories. Just a house. Yeah, it looks, There's a it, porch yeah. out front. Uh, there's a nice balcony. Yeah, it's a nice Victorian style, old, you know, Denver style house. Um, the only thing, we had like a big star and crescent hanging uh, on the balcony there. You know, it was interesting because it, it as more people came and, and participated, you know, they always said, yeah, it, it feels like home. And it's like, yeah, because it's literally, you know, it's literally in a home. This was Denver's very first African-American mosque. Taj and a few of his friends chipped in and bought it back in 1995 and started renovating. A library upstairs, a barbecue area out back, a new paint job. Again, the area was, I won't say high crime, but it was a lot of gang activity. But our presence here gave a lot of safety um, to our neighbors. And very quickly it dissipated. It, it really did. We had, we had, you know, less and less incidences. And it was just a neighborhood feel. And we just really fit in just really, really, really well. And pretty soon our Juma services were, you know, hundreds. This street was lined up with cars in the back streets. And, and so we grew. Sadly, it isn't a mosque anymore. By 2004, they were falling behind on payments and Denver's real estate market was booming. They took out a second mortgage and paid out of their own pockets, but they couldn't keep up. And the community split and opened up two other mosques in the area. This house still holds a special place for them, though. A lot of us drive by and we tell, hey, I drove by the old house, you know. This, this was really central to us and even to the greater Denver metro area because, again, this is where the idea of, of American Islam really took root in Denver. And, 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 and it made our experience, I think, in our minds legitimate and much more comfortable. So this was, this. I mean, you know, it's a house and um, it has a lot of nostalgia, but it also, it's meaningful. You know? This is like a foundational thing for us.
it wasn't always smooth sailing. You might have heard about the NFL player Colin Kaepernick. He refused to stand for the national anthem before football games this year in protest against police brutality. But he wasn't the first. Twenty years earlier, a basketball player with the Denver Nuggets, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, did the same thing. It didn't go well. There was public outrage. He was suspended from the NBA and his career never recovered. And that wasn't all. When the stuff went down with Mahmoud, one of the radio stations like did a stunt where they went to the mosque, and this is the larger mosque, you know, a little bit south of here, and they went into the mosque and were playing to start. It was like this prank where they ran in and, and with this band and started playing the Star Spangled Banner. That was like their retaliation. And we all remember thinking, you know, anyone can run up and like that is something they should have been aware of and it should not have happened because it was so because it was during prayer time. And so it was so disrespectful because they also had like sort of filmed it. And so you just saw all these Muslims like, what in the world is this? So when 9-11 happened, Taj and the others were already on edge. This mosque was their sanctuary. But now it was also a target. People are pissed. Americans have been killed by quote-unquote foreign Muslims. And here we are, a mosque. Um, so we were like really security-minded, especially for women, because we had a lot of women and kids. And so we were, you know, we were always ultra-protective in that, in that regard. So, you know, I had done security before, so I was always security-minded. I was actually in charge of security. So He decided they needed protection. So he and a few others stationed themselves outside the mosque on the balcony, on the corners, and they were armed. They were expecting the worst. We were. I mean, I think we understood that the reaction is going to be visceral. I mean, people died, you know. Uh, my, bro- my brother was in New York at the time, and it took maybe four days before I could even get a hold of him. And I, I didn't imagine that he was in the towers, but still, I, I understood, like, yo, like, I have people that I care about and love who are you know, may be part of this tragedy. And I know how I felt. I, I felt like I was angry. I was angry that Muslims had done it, and I was angry that they had, I, I, again, I was patriotic in that sense that they had attacked. Because I understood that they, as, as an American, I was cast as a traitor, and therefore it was open season on me, and I'm not going to take that lightly or take that sitting down. Nothing happened. No one came to test them. A fight did break out across the road from the mosque at the school, a gang fight. Naturally, Taj and the others went over to try and break it up, except they were still armed. It's a story that's been retold over the years, getting more fantastic as time went by. Years later, I said I talked to one of the guys who was in that fight, and he was his whole impression was like, "Oh my God, these you know paramilitary guys have come out of the woodworks, and they're Muslims. We need to not mess with those guys ever again." Because it, it evolved, you know. I, I remember guys asking me about like, "Hey, we heard you know you you, you guys on 9/11 had you know AK-47s on the roof and sandbags," and it was like, "No, I wasn't." You know, we we were certainly security minded, but you know, nothing nothing quite like that. But you know, stories. You know, they they evolve and get elaborate over time. Let's try a mental exercise. Close your eyes and think of the word Muslim. What do you see? Do you see images of men dressed in black, holding AK-47s, a large machete in hand yelling something at a television camera? Maybe you see a woman in a stark black burqa, hiding behind her husband, a jihadi bride perhaps. 
Or do you see a young college student dreaming of a career in medicine, trying to find her place in the world? Well, according to Edina Lekovich from the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the media plays a big role in what that mental image looks like. Well, today is different than 15 years ago. So uh, today I would say that there are more complex portrayals of Muslims, both in news media and in Hollywood media, pop culture. Um, you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. Unfortunately, the ugly overshadows a lot of the good or even the so-so. Um, and, uh, and the ugly these days is everything that looks like ISIS in real life or fictionalized. Um, it's, it's the most perverted, appalling picture to see of yourself. Um, you know, I remember when I was growing up and I didn't see, I never saw people from Yugoslavia on, you know, on TV. I felt invisible. And then the Bosnian civil war took place. And that was the first time I saw people like me on TV. And mm. it was exciting and also just like really horrifying at the, you know, at the same time to get that kind of introduction. Today, American Muslim youth, that's pretty much all they see of themselves in news stories that are real. There's a whole other layer of images on social media, on YouTube, and in Hollywood now, um, where on Quantico, an American mainstream drama that's on, there is um, a woman who wears hijab in a, in a major role. Aziz Ansari won an Emmy this year. He's not a practicing Muslim, but I don't care. I mean, that, you know, that a, that a brown guy named Aziz Ansari yeah. is winning the Emmy. That's fundamentally different. That wasn't happening 15 years ago. Adina was raised culturally Muslim and struggled with accepting that identity until her college years, when she started meeting other Muslims. One of the defining moments in her youth was at school, when her social studies teacher taught them about Islamic civilization. And I was excited because this was an opportunity to learn more about the faith I was born into. And I actually learned how to pray uh, as part of a group presentation so that we could perform it for the class, which, um, it, yeah, is wild to think about now. And I felt a, a, a glimmer of pride in who I, who I thought I was at that stage. And then my teacher chose to show a film at the end of the unit um, to bring it to life. And the film she chose to show was this film from the 1980s called, and this was at that time, um, Not Without My Daughter, which is a film with Sally Field where she is an American woman married to an Iranian-American man. And they fall in love and they have a daughter. Then he takes her to Iran to meet his family. Then everything turns upside down and his, you know, his evil, uh, wicked uh, Islamic, so-called Islamic self came out. Um, and then Sally Field has to rest, test to, you know, take her own daughter and get out, you know, save their lives. This is the film my teacher showed at the film at the end of the Islamic Civilizations Unit. I, in that moment, I had this glimmer, this little spark of, of, of emerging identity that was snuffed out. I had tears in my eyes and I was ready to crawl under the table. These portrayals that are out there for the average person, they're horrifying and they, they confirm your worst fears of what other people think about you. Edina is trying to change this perception. Do you ever hear people asking why Muslims never speak up when attacks happen, why they don't condemn terrorism? Well... This is what Adina practically does full-time. She calls herself a morning-after girl. When bad things happen, she's there the next morning. On the news, on talk shows, speaking up for those who want to listen. When she's not doing this, she's working with writers in Hollywood to help them create Muslim characters that are more than just one-dimensional bad guys from an Arnie film. However, if these demands are not met, Crimson Jihad will rain fire on one major American city each week 
Adina also runs workshops each year to encourage young Muslims to work in the media, to help them be seen. And that's what I think about today with American Muslim youth who are this, you know, 9-11 generation. They were either just born or, you know, don't remember 9-11, 9-11 happening. I'm grateful that I got out of college before um, that happened. Um, but for them, they don't have the same hang-ups uh, that my generation does. And they have a much more expressive um, attitude about being Muslim, whether it's love it or hate it, because they're kind of put on trial every day if they're publicly choosing to be, you know, to, choosing to be Muslim, um, or if people even perceive them to be Muslim. And it all goes back to media portrayals, because that's how most people know Muslims. There's data now that shows that 62% of Americans say that they do not know a Muslim firsthand. And that means that just 38% possibly do know a Muslim firsthand. But even though media portrayals have improved, the fear and anger surrounding the community is only increasing. Last month, the FBI released a report showing hate crimes against the Muslim community surged by 67% in 2015, the highest level since the aftermath of 9-11. The climate right now feels very volatile. It is uh, weekly, if not more frequent, that we're hearing about not just vandalism <clears throat> or verbal insults or people getting kicked off of planes, um, but actual physical violence or even death. Um, two imams were gunned down uh, on their way home from a mosque on a Saturday afternoon in broad daylight. Um, two mothers wearing hijabs or headscarves um, were pushing their kids in the strollers, and they were assaulted by another woman who punched one of the women in her in the face, tried to rip off one woman's scarf, tried to yank a stroller away. Um, there was an older South Asian uh, woman who was um, stabbed to death on the sidewalk in front of her street, again with, you know, hate words attached to it. Um, these incidents are popping up all over the country, and it's unhealthy for an American Muslim to walk around on the streets and to fear other people's fear of them. This is where I had planned to end the episode. It was two weeks out from the presidential elections, and I was worried things might change if Donald Trump won. I raised this with our head of podcasts, Tim Watkin. Don't worry, that's not going to happen. Yeah, you're right, I said. Then... It is my high honour to introduce to you the president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. I reached out to Edina again, a day after the election results. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Edina, how's it going? Um, good. Good enough, I suppose. What is the Muslim community going through right now? You know, it's, um, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that yesterday, 11-9, was as close to how we felt on 9-11 um, as anything I have felt in the last 15 years. Um, but the difference is that when 9-11 happened, none of us had any idea what was going to happen next. Um, we couldn't foresee the future. And this time around there is a much more ominous sense of being able to foresee the future. For all the dread and uh, and sickness I felt, and I certainly felt those things, the biggest piece of dread I held was waking up in the morning and, uh, and having to tell my five-year-old son, 
who has been following the election right along with us um, and has been uh, has been scared of Trump. And, call, you know, my son is into superheroes and villains. And so he has been calling uh, Donald Trump a villain um, for for a long time because of the kinds of uh, behavior that he has. Um, it's very challenging to try to try to empower our youth while we ourselves um, are trying to trying to empower and steady ourselves um, for the road ahead. In the days that follow, dozens of reports emerge of racially fueled attacks. A Muslim woman has her hijab pulled off. A Muslim man has his car firebombed on the highway. But there's also hope. Large rallies gather in all the major cities around the U.S., promising to defend the communities left vulnerable by a rising tide of racism and Islamophobia. Donald Trump may have revised his plan to stop Muslims entering the country, but now he's talking about setting up a Muslim registry, just like Bush did 15 years ago. It's scary stuff, but he's not the only one. Several other Republican candidates ran on a similar platform, arguing the Muslim community should be under more scrutiny. Since 9-11, Muslims across the country have felt like targets, like they're constantly in the crosshairs of public policy and left to fend for themselves when the public turns on them. That's the expectation, not just because we feel that way, but because the data shows it. So uh, during this election season, there was a study done and it compared President Bush's comments right after 9-11 about Islam as a peaceful religion and separating the terrorists from, from true Muslims. And hate crimes and hate incidents went down. On the other hand, when Donald Trump called for an outright ban of Muslims, there was a, an increase in hate crimes and hate incidents that took place in the days and weeks after that statement was made. So this is going to be a time of digging deep, rolling up our sleeves and continuing to work creatively and with a, a profound spirit of patient perseverance because we can't duck, we can't leave, this is our country. And I know um, so, in fact, I have so many Muslim friends in the last couple of days who have said, you know what, if I didn't feel like I belonged in America before, well, damn it, I belong in America now. This is my country. Not that man or any person is going to, is going to push me out of my country. I'm staying here to fight for America. Next week on Public Enemy, we head to Australia, where Muslims say they've had to face racism and xenophobia for decades, terror raids, and a federal politician calling for a total ban on Muslim migration. Sound familiar? This episode of Public Enemy was produced by me, Mohammed Hassan, for RNZ. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our engineer is Jeremy Ansel. You can find us online at rnz.co.nz, on iTunes, and on Spotify. Don't forget to rate us and share with your friends. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.